This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Hey, welcome to all the Torah, Torah Anytime listeners out there. Um, my shirim are around, been around for a while already, so you can search for other ones as well. Perk, this is Parshas Truma, Perk Chaf Hei Pasuk Zion. This is the parsha of the donations to the Mishkan. Truma means donations. And of those donations, there are 15 of them that are listed. Rashi says 13 that are listed at the very beginning of these Pesukim. And the very last two that are mentioned are Avne Shoam, these Onyx stones, O-N-Y-X, if those stones were onyx stones, the Avne Miluim, as well as these Avne Miluim, the stones that filled in the settings, La Ephod Lachoshin, that were used for the Ephod and the Choshin itself. So Rashi, based on Targum Unculus, says the following. He tells us these stones were needed for the Ephod. And what that means is, this is the Avne Ephod and the, the Avne Shoham that we have, they would need two of the exact same type of stone. And if you'll remember, guys, the Ephod is a backwards apron, an apron that sort of went toward the back instead of the front. And it attached to the Choshen that the Queen Gadol wore in the front. The way that they attached was through chains. There was chains right over here, chains on the side, as well as chains in the back. And the way that they attached from one to the other, they ha- had basically shoulder pads. The shoulder pads were these Avne Shoham that were in little settings on top of his shoulder connected to the chains to the front to the choshen to the breastplate to the back to the aphod and these avne aphod was going to be two of the exact same type of stone that would be able to hold up the aphod connect it to the choshen and be able to wear right on top of everything else that was the idea behind it aside from the avne the avne shohan they also had avne miluin on the Choshen itself, as we all know, it was a folded up sort of like piece of cloth. The cloth was made out of the blue, scarlet, purple wool together with the linen. They put it all together in gold as well. They folded it together. Inside that fold was two little pieces of paper with the Shemos of Hashem, the Urim and the Tumim. The Urim and Tumim were in Shemos of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, according to Ramban. They placed it inside the fold. On the outside of the fold was a large place with settings, settings for 12 stones, four rows of three stones each, one, two, three. Three, one, two, three, one, two, three. In each one of those stones were one of the Avne Miluin. One of those Avne Miluin. Twelve precious gemstones were placed inside that Hoshan. They had twelve altogether that fit inside there. That's the idea of what these are. The Avne the Avne Shoam and the Avne Miluin. The Avne Shoam for on top of over here. The Avne Miluin for the Hoshan itself. So, according to Rashi, when it says at the end of the Pasuk, La Ephod Vila Hoshan, La Ephod is going on the Avne Shoam, and the Avne Miluim is going on the the, the, I'm sorry, the aphod. The avne shom is going to the aphod, and the avne miluim is referring to the choshen itself. Chizkuni and the Ibn Ezra say technically the avne shom went on both. There was one of the 12 stones that they wore on the choshen, which was a shoham. The stone for Yosef at Tzadik, the second to last one, was a shoham stone. So aside from the Avne Shoham being those two shoulder pads that he had, it also referred to a stone that's on the Choshen. According to Ibn Ezra and the Chizkuni, that's why it says, La Ephod Vila Choshen. Going on the Avne Shoham, those Avne Shoham were for the Ephod and the Choshen. It applied to both of them, and that makes a lot of sense. Bali Tosfos, the Tosefis Bracha, go on and they say, this is something that's mentioned in other t- places, where you have, where some two words at the end of a Pasuk really refer to two separate things in the Pasuk above, where it could refer to everything in the Pasuk above, and they go through all the different ideas over here. 
But according to Rashi, as we said above, there were certain stones that they fit into the setting. Now, how did those stones fit in? You had these stones and they fit inside. The way Rashi is looking at it, the way it seems to be is, there were almost like holes inside, settings made out of gold, in which they made them on the choshen itself, a little the, on the breastplate itself. And again, this thing was made of cloth, a little fold-up thing. On top of it was something that was made of gold. And on the gold, there was sort of like a little setting with a hole in it. And you took the stone and you placed it inside and it fit in exactly as so. And therefore, he calls them avne miluim. The word malay means to fill in. And according to Rashi, those stones simply filled in the settings. That's all they were. Nothing crazy, nothing special. They just filled in the settings that they were supposed to be. And that's that. Targum Yonason seems to say a little bit different. He says the Avne Shoam are the Avne Miluim. It's referring to special gemstones over here. I'm not sure that this Targum Yonason is saying anything different from how Rashi says it. It is a weird Targum Yonason. It seems that it's not separate. It's the Avne Shoam, which are the Avne Miluim. But either way, that's the Targum Yonason. But the basic idea behind Rashi is that you have that and that's that. What's up? Why don't the Avne Shoam also have a lesson of so that one of the Ramban's questions, hold up on that. The Ramban asks four questions on Rashi. Four obvious questions on Rashi's shot of how these Avne Shom and Avne Miluim are. Number one, it makes no sense that we're calling them Avne Miluim for what they're going to be in the future. These are Avanim that should have names on their own right now. Avne Miluim means these are stones that are going to be used to fill in the settings of the Khoshan. But when they were donating things, they didn't know what they were going to be used for. They had no idea. For all they knew, these stones, these gemstones were going to be used for the Mishkan. They didn't know they were going to be used for the Kohen Gadol. They didn't see Parshish Tzitzava beforehand. So when they were donating the stones, don't call them Avne Miluim, stones to fill in the settings. They don't have settings yet to fill in. That wouldn't be the right word for it. It says the Ramban, it's the wrong word. You're naming it for the future when really it should be the stones. You should just say, simply put, instead of Avanim even, call them gems. Call them precious stones if you want to do it. Avanim Yikarim, precious stones. That's the way you should do it. Not anything else. Avne Miluim doesn't fit. That's number one. Number two, the Avne Shoam, as you just said, the Avne Shoam that went on top of the shoulder pads were also Avne Miluim. They also went into settings. They were no different from the Avanim over here. Just like the Avanim over here fit into different settings, so to the Avne Shoam also fit into settings on their shoulders. There should be no difference. If these are Avne Miluim, these are Avne Miluim as well. So why are you separating the Avne Shoam and mentioning them as something different? That's number two. Number three, he quotes the Gemara in Sotah, that Mem Chesimut Beis. That Gemara says that the word Bemiluosam, which is in their fulfillments, in their, you know, the setting, so to speak, Bemiluosam teaches us not to use a metal chisel to write the names in the stones. All the stones, the th- four rows of three each, had the names of the Shvatim in there. There was Ruvain, and then there happened to be an extra letter, Aleph. And then there was Shimon, and then there was a Bez. Levi, Reish, Heimem, for Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Shivte, Yishurin, which were also written on. Every stone had six letters written on it, Whatever amount of letters you needed for the Shevet's name, Reuven had five letters, so you only needed an Aleph. And altogether, if you counted all the letters and all 12 stones, there were six letters on each. 12 times 6 is 72 for the 72-letter name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which, as we said before, is, there is no 72-letter name. There's a 72-word name. Of each word make, comprised of three letters each. It's technically a 216-letter name. But the 72 words that are comprised, that are called the 72-letter name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, based on Yudke Vavke, etc., right? 
right? That idea is on the stones themselves with each one of the stones representing. So how did they do that? They had to use the shamir worm. They couldn't use metal. Well, if that's so, where do we learn that from? That you can't use metal to chisel out the names on the stones themselves. We learn it, says the Ramban, from the word bimiluosam. But why? The word sum just means they fit into the settings, that they fit into the different areas right over there. How in the world does that word have anything to do with chiseling or using metal or not using metal on these stones? That doesn't make any sense. That's number three. Number four, the word mishbetzes, according to mishbetzos, according to Rashi, refers to the settings themselves. The holes in which the stones would fit into were called mishbetzos. Says Tosvos, based on Gemara's and Midrashim, it seems that Mishpitzos are not the settings where the stones fit into. Mishpitzos are golden prongs that were used to hold the stones in place. So says Nuramban, it seems that there were no holes at all. That the Choshen was a straight, flat, gold object. And in order to keep the stones in place, like you have by any engagement ring, you have little prongs sticking up that hold the stone down in place. And if you haven't seen that before, just ask somebody. They have like little prongs that stick out there, keep the stone where they are, and that's that. So they have that and that as well. The mishpitzos is not a setting where you filled in the area. There's nothing to fill in. It's a flat stone with little things sticking out, holding the stone in. That's what it's referring to. So yes, in Rashi, it makes no sense. Nothing that Rashi says, according to him, makes any sense at all. That's how the Ramban says it. So he says, so what is the word miluim? Why are they called Avni Miluim? So he says the most obvious answer in the world. You know what Avni Miluim are? They're Malay stones, meaning these are stones that were chiseled out as they were without them doing anything. See, we think of like they had to take like a huge diamond and then chisel it down and knock it down in order to make it just big enough to be able to fit into the settings. And according to Rashi, that's what they did. They chiseled down, but they couldn't use metal. They had to use something else to knock down the diamond to be able to go through. They used something else, the shamir worm, to be able to fit it in and then to write in everything, etc. Says Ramban, no. The milu sum and this word miluim means these stones were malay. Nothing was done to them. They found stones that fit exactly into the Khoshan. And these are big stones. I don't know how big they would have to be, but we're talking at least a 10, 12, 15 carat diamond that would have to fit inside this area if a diamond was used. Whatever it is, a ruby, an emerald, a sapphire if they had it at the time, whatever they had, each stone was exactly mole. They did nothing to it. They took these stones that were exactly the right size, put them inside the Khoshan as it was, prongs sticking out, and they fit in that way. Which means, I mean, I, I, I don't know, in theory, was miraculous, but it could be that the stones weren't all the exact same size. See, when we see the, the beautiful pictures that you have in all these coin guttle books, you know, and you used to look at them and anything made by art school, you look at them and you're like, oh wow, nice stones and they're perfect. That's Rashi. According to the Ramban, it could be that the ruby was this big and the emerald was this big and then whatever was the third, the crystal, the diamond, whatever it was, was that big. We have no idea. They were put in exactly as is, and that's the word miluim, malay. From that, you can understand, if they're malay, then you can't chisel them down. That's how you know that there was no metal used to chisel them down at all, because you couldn't put names inside them. You couldn't do anything to them. They had to be exactly as they were, exactly malay. So when you ask, so how in the world could you put names in them at all? That's where the shamir worm had to come in. The shamir worm had to be used for that. What are you going to ask, Gary? 
<laughs> so we're going to get to that. But yeah, then it's miraculous. And if we're dealing with something that's crazy miraculous, then obviously it could be the exact same size and everything would be all good, right? That would be perfectly fine. The point is that according to Ramban, they didn't have to be. When they bought the stones off Dhamma Benesina, we don't know what they bought exactly off Dhamma Benesina. That Kamar and Kedushan, Dhamma Benesina had tremendous kibbut av. They wanted to buy the stones from the precious stones from it for the Choshen, but they couldn't buy it from them. It could be they were using the Avne Eiffel, they were using whatever it was, but they wanted to buy the stones from them. It could be they weren't equal. That wasn't miraculous. That was precious stones that he owned, precious gemstones. So it could be that there were different sizes because you didn't need the same size, says the Ramban, for all this. That's the idea behind it. It is an awesome answer. And then again, miluim means exactly that. Miluim means malay. They were full as they were without anything taken down. The Mizrahi and the Gur Arye hear all the Ramban's questions, but they answer all of them up. They say, to us, it's not that big of a deal. You should know there is a tour. The Balaturim also wrote a Sefer and Pshat, not just in Remez. The tour does try answering a little bit like the Ramban and adds on a little bit, but it's basically the same, so I'm not going to add it on. The Mizrahi and the Gur Arye say, they're not enough. The questions of the Ramban are good. They're not great. They're not great. The Pshat is, it's simple. The Avne Shoham were, Shoham were not like the Avne Miluim. The Avne Miluim over here were exactly a little hole and the stone fit exactly in. By the Avne Shoham, the settings were bigger and then the Avne Shoham were placed on top but they didn't fit exactly in. Maybe they stuck out a little bit. Maybe they weren't exactly in a Malay, in the Miluim part, the same way as it was over here. So he says, so I don't mind. The Avne Shoham were not exactly like the Avne Miluim, and that's why it's not mentioned in the same fashion. That's one. It could be that Moshe Rabbeinu was being told this now, even though it's going to be for the future, because he had to know how thick the stones had to be. He told them that, I guess Moshe Rabbeinu was telling everybody, look for stones, look for gemstones that are extra thick, because we have to make them Miluim, to fill up the spaces. Maybe according to Rashi, that's why they, they had to find out how big they were and why they're called Avni Miluim now. I don't want just Stam gemstones. I want thick gemstones that will fill up a spot. Maybe that's why you'd have to say it over here. Maybe there were chains to hold everything in place. So aside from just fitting in the settings, maybe there was also a little chain that they used to poke holes inside the stones and then stick them inside there. Really, the Mishpitzos are chains, and they're still being learned. So either way, the Kurariye and the Mizrahi both agree. All these answers, these questions on Rashi could all be answered. He says that the word Avni Miluim means is because once you finish it off, they look perfect. And that's why they're called Avni Miluim, because once you put them inside the little settings, they look perfect. And if you look at any of those books, it does look that way. The unfortunate part is that we have no idea because we haven't seen the Khoshan. We don't know what the Khoshan really looked like. If we saw it, we would be helped. But even Rashi and the Ramban never had an inkling. They never saw it themselves. They had to darshan it out. And the truth is, as we know, it doesn't mean even seeing something does not mean that's how we would paskin. By the tzitz, how the tzitz looked and what it said, Kodesh, Lashem, etc. Just because Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Sadok, I think it was, saw it in Rome, did not mean that's how we paskin, that's what the tzitz looked like. It could have looked differently and Rashi and the Ramban would still argue. Rashi and the Ramban would still go through. I use this as an example all the time and it's just a question to think about. I, I don't have an answer for it. There's, there's already tshuvas and there's rishonim that talk about this. But just think for a second. Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam, his grandson, argued about the order of the Parshios of Tefillin, right? They argued about it. What were they wearing before Rashi? What did they have? So if you tell me they never wore Tefillin, then you're a fool. There's no way that Rashi was like, oh, Tefillin, guys! <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, right! That did not happen. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard before in my life. People were wearing Tefillin. But what did they do before Rashi came around? If everybody was going around, they were just like, what were they wearing? Were they wearing Rabbeinu Tam? And then Rashi was like, no, 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 do it like this. And I'm like, okay. And the Rabbeinu Tam said, and like, no, do it back like me. Is that what happened? 
Or were they wearing Rashi tefillin? And Rashi said, yeah, that's pshat. And then the Rabbeinu Tam argued. So on the tefillin that they were wearing for hundreds of years, they did it. Or was it another order? And Rashi said, no, do this order. And then the Rabbeinu Tam said, no, do that order. Was it something like that? It's just a question to ask. Like, if Rashi and the Ramban and the, the Rabbeinu Tam, I'm sorry, saw that other people were wearing tefillin, and it didn't stop them from arguing. So, so too over here, even if they saw the Choshen, it could be they still would have argued. And they would have said, no, 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 I understand that that's what they did. That doesn't mean that's what they were supposed to do. Maybe you should do something different. That's always how we look at it. Yes, there's a Mesora, but when the Mesora is broken... And this would be an example of the breaking of that Mesorah. There's always an ability to understand in a different fashion or even to change based on a psak that a Gadol Hador is able to come up with. That can change depending on how the Mesorah goes, etc. But this is an idea behind it, yeah. What's the answer to the third question of it's here. You can look it up. But I didn't want to go through every single one of them. But I did write it over here. I will tell you, the Ksav Kabbalah writes one of the biggest Kedushim I've seen in a long time. I don't think I've seen this before. This is a crazy one over here. Both of the stones refer to stones used for the Choshen, not for these guys up here, not the shoulder pads. They were not referring to that. Some of the stones were whole and cannot be bored through. They were just such thick stones that if you bored a hole through them, it could be the whole stone, the gemstone would break. And I guess there are gemstones like that that are a little bit of a weak consistency. I'm not, I'm not, what do they even call it? A gemologist? Is that what they call it? Yeah? So I'm not a gemologist. I don't even know that, I didn't even know that word existed until three seconds ago. But what I do know is that certain stones have a consistency that might be weaker than others. And if you tried to bore a hole straight through it, it would break. So they didn't do it. Those stones fit in exactly or were held by the prongs. But there were other stones in which they could bore a hole through it in order to keep them in place, because obviously you don't want these things getting lost, right? They would make a little gold strand and stick it through and hold it in that way. So he says those that were the, the, the ones that had to be placed and fitted inside because you couldn't bore a hole through them, they had to be fitted inside. Those were called Avni Miluim. The stones that you could put a, put a string through and be able to hold them in place with that string, they were called Avni Shoham. And that was the difference between Avni Shoham and Avni Miluim. I have no idea where he gets that from. I've never seen anything like that. He doesn't quote a Medrash at all, but this is the Ksava Kabbalah brings that down. Then comes the Orachayim HaKadosh. Perhaps you've heard this question before. It's been made famous from Sichos Musaf from Rechaim Shmulevitz, but it's the Orachaim Akadush's question, and he gives three answers to the question. The question is simple. The Pasuk starts off with the gifts given to Klai Yisrael, and clearly they're in order of Chashivus. How do I know they're in order of Chashivus? Well, go through them gold, then silver, then copper. And then now you're dealing with dyed wool, the Sheshvizim, linen comes after that, and then comes goat hair, and then Oros Hashem, etc., skin from an animal. It's clear it's going in order of Chashivus. And even if you want to say the Takash was such a rare animal that they didn't have it and that was very expensive, it seems everything else is in a clear order from the most expensive gold to the least expensive, all the way down to the Shemen and the Bisamim, the oil and the spices that were at the very, very end. It seems pretty clear that it's in order of Chashivus. So what in the world are the gemstones doing last? It's very possible that just one of these gemstones, can you imagine just simply a 12-carat diamond that you'd have to fit on top of here? Do you know how much that would be worth? That's a crazy amount of money. That's more than possibly all the gold they donated all together. 
I don't know how much they, that, 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 that type of a gemstone would be. A diamond was, and then you're not only doing one. You're doing the gem. You're doing a diamond. You're doing a ruby. You're doing an emerald. You're doing all the, the most precious stones in the world. Why is this last? This should be the first before everything. Says the Orachim HaKadosh. It doesn't make any sense. This is by far the most expensive thing that you're going to mention over here. Why would it be mentioned last? So three answers. The first answer is kind of an obvious one. It hints to the Medrash that the Zikanim went to Moshe Rabbeinu and they said, Moshe Rabbeinu, listen, we know that you're getting these donations from everybody. We're going to come to you at the very end. Whatever you need, you can come to us. Now, first of all, if you're collecting for a yeshiva or a shul or anything and you go up to somebody and you say, and the person says, what's your goal number? And you say, goal number, right now it's 3 million. <laughs> Something like that. How much do you have collected? 20,000. And he says, okay, I'll take care of anything you need at the very end of the day. You're like, thank you. And then you don't try very hard. <laughs> that's pretty much it. That's, if somebody says it to you, that's like the greatest bracha in the world. He's going to take care of everything you need without worrying about anything at the end. That's an unbelievable bracha. But the Zikinim said that to Moshe Rabbeinu. And at the very end, we all know what happened, right? Over two days, the Bnei Yisrael came by and kept donating and donating and donating until there was nothing left to be for, for them to donate. And Moshe Rabbeinu even asked them to stop donating, which is possibly the first time and last time it's ever happened before that somebody asked people to stop donating, but stopping to donate after two days. And after all of that happened, when the people, the Nisim, came up to Moshe and said, so what's missing? Moshe Rabbeinu said, nothing. We're good. We don't need you guys. So the Nisim had nothing to bring. And at the end of the day, so what did they do? Says the Medrash, the clouds in the morning brought the mun. The mun rained down by the Nisim's doors. And on each Nasi's door, together with the mun, came down one of the gemstones of the Choshen. So for Ruvain, outside of the Nasi of Ruvain's house, by the doorway, I think his name is Otsafan, right? Right there, he had a ruby. A red ruby was inside his mun, and he didn't eat it. He picked it up, and he brought it over to Moshe Rabbeinu. Outside of Shimon's, there was a green emerald. Outside of Levi's, there was a green barakas, whatever that is, the crystal, etc. Each one of them got that precious gemstone in their mun. It came down on the right then, and they immediately offered them as donations to the base of Mekdash to be able to give them over to the Mishkan itself, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. But what was the issue with what the Nisim did? Isn't that an amazing thing? I get it. But at the end of the day, they offered anything in the world and they gave the most precious gemstones in the world. Tell me, would you have blamed them if they would have kept those gemstones for themselves? I mean, they got it at their doorsteps. Are they required to give it to the Mishkan? No, and they gave it anyway. That's awesome. Why in the world are we blaming them? We're going up to them and we're saying, oh, you lose the Yud from your name. You're not known as the Nesim, you're known as the Nesom. Right? Then it's some nun sin aleph mem because you didn't bring on time. For what? So for what? What did they do wrong? So this Rukhain Shmulavit, Sikhos Musar and Simon Maimer Nun says their fault is that they should have jumped up in the beginning and donated something and then offered to give everything at the end. It should have been listen, here is a thousand bucks. This is the first thing we're donating. Whatever you need at the end, I'll fill it up at the end. Whatever you need, I'll take care of it. That says Roshmuel Levitz was their problem. How could they not have done that? They didn't jump up and act with Zerizus when they were asked to donate. They only wanted to donate at the end. And even though we would look at it and say, that's amazing. Kodesh Baruch looked at them and said, you're being lazy. And he knew that his seeing were being lazy. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do exactly. And therefore, it was something that's going to be wrong. 
That's the idea of waiting behind. Hold on one second. Rosh Strombach answers that that was the Shorish behind everything. That You wouldn't be able to see it. I wouldn't be able to see it. But Hashem saw it within the Nesim that they mamish. They had that Mida of Atzlus. Great intentions. But if the Atzlus behind it, they didn't realize what they even had. But in the end, didn't they bring gemstones? In the end, they brought gemstones, right? What if they wouldn't have brought those gemstones? Would the Jews have had gemstones for the Mishkan? So let me ask you. Moshe Rabbeinu said, Done. We're done donating. We don't need anything whatsoever. Nobody bring anything else. But they didn't have the gemstones yet. When did the mun come, everybody? When did the mun come? Mun came in the morning, right? Mun came in the morning. When did they get these gemstones? Baboker, baboker, two mornings, they brought in all of their money. And then Moshe Rabbeinu said, stop. So he stopped because we have enough. We don't need anything else. And then the next morning, in their mun, they found gemstones and brought it in. So I don't understand. Did they have enough or they didn't have enough? If they had enough, then why did Moshe Rabbeinu accept the gemstones? He just said, nobody brings anything else. If they didn't have enough, if they didn't, right, let's say they didn't have enough, then what happens at the end of the day, right, they, they needed more. So why did Moshe Rabbeinu say stop? They still needed gemstones. He should have said, guys, if you don't have gemstones, don't bring anything, but if you have, bring something else. So the answer, I think, is obvious. The answer is, is that they did have enough money to buy the gemstones. They had enough kesef and gold and everything else that was donated. They had enough to buy the gemstones on their own. But they didn't have the actual gemstones. The Nisim brought the gemstones. And I don't know if this is correct. This, I'm not positive. Let's say they brought the gemstones and then they made a treasury out of all the extra money they were planning on spending there, the gemstones. But can you imagine this? They paid the Nisim for the gemstones. That's why they lost the Yud. I'm not positive about that. I haven't seen this anywhere, but I'm wondering why this would be so. Again, did they have the money or they didn't have the money? If they had the money, then why were they allowed to donate it afterward? And the answer is, they lost the opportunity to get anything. Aye, but they brought the gemstones. No, they didn't. They brought the gemstones that Hashem gave them and they paid them for it. So the Nisim didn't donate anything because they weren't allowed to donate anything. They just sold the gemstones to the people in the Mishkan. If anybody can find that for me, I would be amazed. I would be amazed. I've been searching for this for years to see if this is true. And if anybody has an answer to my question, what was the point? Did they have enough or they didn't have enough? Just somebody who asks the question. I would love to see it. I have not seen this question anywhere, and I thought it was an absolute obvious question. But it could be that that's the shot. It could be that that's the idea behind it. The excess gold and silver was enough to be able to buy whatever they needed, and therefore they would have bought the gemstones, but they didn't because the Nisim brought them instead. Whether the Nisim were paid for it or not, that's my idea. Maybe they were, and maybe that's why they did not donate one thing. There were no donations allowed, even from the Nisim, and even the gemstones were not donations. They were bought by the, from the people, from the Mishkan to the, to the Nisim. What's up, Esther? I think in merit of the of the shvatim, as opposed to the Nisim, or maybe in just simply put, in the schus of their their willingness to give everything at the end, Hashem still wanted to reward them for it, but show that they did the wrong thing. I think that's the idea, but I'm not positive. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't know that then. When they first went up in the beginning, there wasn't enough. There, nobody had brought anything yet. So Nassim immediately went to motion and said, at the end, we'll bring enough. They didn't know at the beginning. Yeah, 
they should have assumed that the other people had enough. I, I guess maybe, maybe they thought that the people weren't willing to give. Maybe they, they thought that the people weren't going to give enough. You know, maybe that's it. I, I don't know. That I can't answer. That's answer number one. Second answer. The second answer is also an obvious answer. These donations were being used for two different things. And everybody knows this. The Mishkan as well as the Big Day Kuna. There were certain things being donated for the Mishkan. For example, the skins. The skins weren't used for the Big Day Kuna at all, right? They were just used for the Mishkan. Then there were things that were donated only for the Big Day Kuna. Were the Avne Miluim used for the Big Day, for the Mishkan itself? Was it used for the Mishkan at all? No. Were the Avne Shoham, those shoulder pads, if they were there, were they used for the Mishkan itself? No. Well, there's a difference, guys. There was a massive difference halachically. Anything that's used in the Mishkan has an issue of Me'ila. If you used something in the Mishkan, something that was donated to the Mishkan itself, and you used it improperly, there's an issue, there's an Isser of Me'ila of using Hektish, using something that was Hektish. Anything that's used for the big day kuna gedola, anything that's used to make the big gadam the coin gadol, using those items was not chayiv and mi'ila. Meaning if you used them improperly, it was not the same isser. It was not the same problem. The mishkan was a problem of mi'ila. The big day kuna gedola was not a problem of mi'ila. And if that's so, if this is true, then it makes sense why the avne miluam, the avne shoam were mentioned last. Even though they were more precious than everything else, they weren't on the same level of Kedusha as everything else. The gold, the silver, the copper were used for the Mishkan. They had Me'ila on them. They were a higher level of Kedusha. Therefore, they are mentioned first. But the Avne Shom, the Avne Miluim were not as Kadosh. If they're not as Kadosh, you mention them last. And I think that's an obvious answer. Even though there were certain things, like the gold was not only used for the Mishkan, it was also used for the Big Day Kunigdola. The gold was used for both because they had strings that they made for the clothing. Nonetheless, the majority of the gold was for the Mishkan. The majority of the silver was for the Mishkan, even if they used it for other things, even if the wool, etc., the wool, the red, scarlet, purple, etc., wool, was also used for the Mishkan itself, not only for the Big Day Kunigdola. That's a great answer as well. That's the second answer. And then comes the third answer, which is also an answer that everybody's heard of. And again, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz goes on. There's a Gemara, Yuma, it says that these stones fell right there by the door of the Nisim along with the Mun. That means there was no Tircha in order to get them. The Nisim walked out their door, picked it up, and with the Mun was the, the, coin, the, the stones themselves. Now, the answer to Archaim, which is an interesting one, is, is that money that they, made, that they had to get with a Tircha you have to bother to get, you have to go and get, is more precious than anything that comes to you automatically free. And I think that makes a lot of sense based on the Gemara Kedushan. Rotsa Adam, the Kav Shalom, you want your own Kav. The hundred dollars that you made by working, Yosir Mitesha Kav and Shelchavero. More than nine Kav that somebody gives you for free. It's just, you don't want to be lazy, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that guy who just takes money. You want to work hard for your money, and you earned your money. When you earn your money, you want to use that. You don't just want to take and take and take from other people. And I know there are people nowadays, this is kind of a spoiled generation, so we are kind of okay with taking money from other people. And I, I know people nowadays, when I say over this idea from the Gemara and Kedushan, wrote on the Kav Shalayosim, the guy's like, you mean I could get nine Kav from somebody else? I'll take that. What do you mean? I have to work for a Kav? No, that's not worth it. I'd rather take it from Dad. What do you mean? Of course I should get that. And I get that. I get that the generations have changed and things have, are a little bit different, but I still think it's true. I still think it's true. Anybody who's worked hard for their money and made something out of it is always happier with what they have more than what they got for free. What they call uh, uh, Nama de... Nama de 
Right, the kisufa. That bread that you get of embarrassment, that's just not there itself. The other 13 materials were things that they worked hard for. And I know some of that material, some of that stuff was stuff they got at the Yamsuf. Stuff they got at the Yamsuf itself. And that's true. That's definitely true. But they still had to work to get it. They felt that that was stuff that they were rewarded with from leaving Mitzrayim. They were slaves for years. So even though they picked it up for free at the Yamsuf, or they borrowed it from the Egyptians in Mitzrayim, they didn't feel that way. They felt that that was as a reward for the work that they had done, and therefore the money they had gotten was not ill gains. This wasn't something for free. It was something they mamish worked for, and therefore it was different. It was more precious to God than these precious stones and metals that the, uh, the Nisim got for free. I think I somewhat understand that based on this. Rav Shmulevitz really says it. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz and Sichos Mus are in the same one. It says, the Iker beyond the donations of the Mishkan is Nidvas Lev, something you're willing to give out of the goodness of your heart. You give something that you made. If you give something that you mamish made, you worked really hard for, and you give that dollar, that $100, that $1,000 as tzedakah, if you worked really hard and then you give it up, that's a better donation than money you got for free that you're giving to tzedakah. Even if you're giving more to tzedakah, you got $1,000 for free and you give that to tzedakah versus you worked really hard for the 100 bucks and then you give the 100 bucks to tzedakah HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves that $100 that you worked really hard to get and you're giving that over more than the $1,000 that's donated that you got for free. And I wouldn't be able to say that. I, I, there's no way a person like, on my stature would be able to say that. Even Rechaim Shmulevitz wouldn't be able to say it. But the Orachayim HaKadosh says it. And the Orachayim HaKadosh, you know, I shouldn't say that. Maybe Rechaim Shmulevitz would be able to say something like this. But the Orachayim HaKadosh says it before him. And the Orachim HaKadosh, it makes so much sense that a person's going to go through, and he brings examples of this idea, but the one that hits me the most is the following. There's a Gemara in Moedkat in Chav Chasim and Aleph, and I'll tell you, this is a Gemara that's bothered me for years, and although I don't think this is the full answer to this Gemara, it is a great idea. Maybe you've heard this Gemara before. Reb Chia was standing by the door of his house, right? And the Malach HaMavis tried, it was the day for Reb Chia to die, but the Malach Mavis couldn't get to him because he was learning too much. This Gemara appears in other places. Rav Chiste has this in Moikat and Chav Chasim and Aleph and in Makos Daf Yudim Abayz. David Melech has this in Shabbos Daf Lamed. And uh, it happens again in, by Rabbah Bar Nachmeni in Bamitzia, I think it's on Pei Vavim and Aleph, where it mentions that these three, they were learning so much the Malach Mavis couldn't get to him. Rav Chia was so great. The Talmud of Rabbi Yudin Asi, the Rebbe of Rav, Rav Chia, the uncle of Rav, in both ways, from his father, mother and his father, Rav Chia, the, the Malach Mavis couldn't go anywhere near him. Malachamavis couldn't go anywhere near him. So what did the Malachamavis do? This is what the Gemara says. He dressed up as an ani, as a poor man, came to the door of Reb Chia, knocked on the door, and asked for bread. And Reb Chia came and brought him a loaf of bread. And the Malachamavis said to him, listen to this, Malachamavis said to Reb Chia, if you have mercy on a poor man to give him bread, why won't you have mercy on me to give me your soul? To which Reb Chia said, you're right. And he gave his soul to the Malachamavis. Now, that's the worst Kalvachomer I've ever heard in my life. Like, if someone said this to me, I'd just be like, what? <laughs> I'll give you bread. I'm not giving you my soul. Can you imagine, like, a Meshulach coming to your house, knocking on your door, and, like, you write out an $18 check, right? And you give it over to him, and he's like, can I have your soul? And he's like, oh, sure. <laughs> if I give you 18 bucks, I for sure should give you my soul. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. I have never understood this Gemara. And I even have, on the side of one of my Gemaras, I wrote down in this Gemara, this makes no sense. To me, to me, to me. Doesn't make any sense to me. And I have no idea. So Rechaim Shmulevitz answers the Gemara by saying, that's not what the Malachim was saying. He's saying, if you're willing 
to give up your money to give to a poor person. Money that you worked hard to get. Because remember, Talmidei Chachamim are Chaviv Mamonam Yosemi Gufam. They understand that every bit of the money that Hashem gave them was for them to keep for themselves. Yaakov went back for Pacham Kitanim. Pacham Kitanim. Why? Because he knew it's part of himself. He can't give it up. If you're willing to give up a little bit of bread to an ani, because it's your life, it's like you're being most or nefesh by giving up this piece of bread then why wouldn't you give your whole nefesh to the Malacham Abbas? Why wouldn't you give your nefesh to the Malacham Abbas? Now again, I don't like the Kalvachomer, because like, yeah, I'm willing to give bread of my soul <laughs> to, to somebody. I'm not willing to give up my whole soul, but at least the idea is the same. If you're willing to be most or nefesh by giving your money, why wouldn't you do this? And that's the concept. The concept is when you give something that you worked so hard for that it's really everything to you, that makes something unbelievably well. There's a Tom Vidas over here, Rosh etc., that Rosh says that the toil that I put into my money is commensurate with the amount of reward that I get for giving it. That's the idea behind it, that that's commensurate to all that idea over here. Okay. I asked why the Nassim, there's Yaku Ruveni over here that quotes a Zohar. We're not going to go through that right now. There's also a Balitosis. They go through a whole Remez over here of Shoam itself. I want to go into a different Gemara that's a little bit weird. Miluim, Miluim, says the Rabbeinu Ephraim, is the letters of Male Yam. Male Yam. Now, what does it mean, Male Yam? So he quotes a Gemara in Sanhedrin. He didn't go through it, but I think this is what he's referring to. Rabbi Yochanan darshaned once. He got up in Shir, and he darshaned there's going to be massive Kud code. These huge stones of, I, I don't know, I, I don't know what they would be. These huge, precious stones, pearls maybe, huge pearls that are going to stand outside the gates of the third base of Mikdash. When the third, remember, Rabbi Yochanan lived after the second base of Mikdash was destroyed. Rabbi Yochanan lived in around the year 180 to 200 of the Common Era. He may have lived a little bit longer. He was very, very old. So according to the Seder Adoros, he might have lived 238 years. But Rabbi Yochanan was very old, but he never saw the second base of Mikdash, or he saw the end, the very, very end after the second base of Mikdash was destroyed. And he said, by the third base of Mikdash, there will be Kudkod. And he quoted a Pasuk, Samti Kud Code, right? But he said there's going to be these huge stones outside of your slime. And for that, he said they might be pearls. So a Talmud, Ligla Glavoso a Talmud. So a Talmud laughed at Rabbi Yochanan. He said, we don't even see pearls the size of chicken eggs. How in the world are there going to be pearls, these huge size, that are going to be all these huge size of the Amos by Amos standing outside? How can a pearl be that big? You can't see a clam that big. How is a pearl going to be that big? Solid question, right? So Rabbi Yochanan's Talmud, because of that, went off. Says the Gemara, he was Porish Alayam. He went to the sea. He was a sailor. And at sea, one night, or one day, he saw the Malachim taking out huge pearls from the sea and shining them. And this Talmud, with Zilcha to talk to them, said to the Malachim, what are these for? What are you using these, these code for? And he said, oh, we're shining them for the base of Mikdash in the future. So he comes back to dry land, goes over to Rabbi Yochanan's shir, and he said, Dorish, lechana alidrosh, you should darshan. For you it's good to darshan. Why? Because exactly as you said, I saw it with my own eyes. Now what would you respond when somebody did that to you? Somebody said that to you, what would you respond? Your response would be like, that's awesome, right? Isn't that what you would say? It's crazy. Like I, I ate a drush and like all of a sudden it, like you saw it with your own eyes. It's amazing, right? Rabbi Yochanan killed him. Rabbi Yochanan put his eyes upon him, Nelson Bo'enov, he said, Russia, Russia, you only believed it because you saw it? You didn't believe it when I darshaned it? You only believed it when you saw it? <laughs> Nelson Bo'enov, he put his eyes upon him, and Nelson Bo'enov, teach you a lesson. Don't, don't get Rabbi Yochanan angry. 
he kills other people as well, right? Rish Lakish, Ribkana, right? And Baba Kama Kupyadzain. You don't want to get Rabbi Yochanan angry. That's for sure true. So that's number one. But number two, what a Gemara. What a Gemara. What does that mean exactly? What are we referring to? And to that, says the Rabbeinu Ephraim and the Balaitosis, it's possible that that's what the word Miluim is referring to. The Avni Miluim is a hint to the future. Then they had little stones that just fit on the Choshen itself. In the future, those stones are going to be hundreds of times larger. Those stones are going to be these huge gemstones that surround the base of Mikdash that we have never seen before. What's the biggest diamond in the world? Is it the Hope Diamond? Is that what it's supposed to be? It was supposed to be originally like 120 carats and it's broken down. Now it's like a bunch of different diamonds, like 20 and 30. I think, I don't know, whatever it is. There's a huge diamond out there. There's a ruby that's supposed to be in India by an Avodazara out there. that's supposed to be like 40, 50, whatever, 40, 50 carats, something that's absolutely huge. We are going to have massive stones that are Malayam. They're all throughout the sea. We haven't seen them yet because the Kaddish Baruch Hu was hiding them down there knowing it could be used to bad things if it was brought on earth. And therefore, they're waiting for us. And when the Malachim are ready, they're going to bring it in front of the Mishkan, in front of the Beis Hamikdash that we're going to have in the future. Those are going to be our entranceways. We're going to go through these huge, precious stones that are going to go through. And that's the line of Avne Miluim. It's referring to the Avonim they had at the time. But it's hint is to the Avne Miluim, the Malay Yam that they're going to have in the future. What an unbelievable little line over here. And finally, we're going to end with this Dego Machna Ephraim. Degomach and Ephraim says, this Pasuk also hints to two ways that people learn Torah. Some people learn Torah, read the words of the Torah as they should, the way understanding it in Pshat, just to get the understanding down. And I think we do that by Tefillah as well. Reading our Tefillah, just understanding, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkeinu, Hashem Echad, no, no fancy stuff. B'nai Yisrael should listen, Hashem our God is the one God. And that's it. That's the way we read Shema, and that's the way it sounds like, and that makes sense. You read it in Pshat. But there are some people who are on a higher level, says the Dagomachna Ephraim, the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. There are some people on a higher level. Whenever they read something in Torah or when they daven, they're able to get down to the, the kishkas of each word, of each letter. They're able to understand the meaning behind each word and each other. They're able to understand everything there. There are certain people that when reading the Torah, they bring down shefa from Shemaim. They bring down good things from the heavens above. Some people are able to bring down shefa from the back of a Kaddish Baruch it's not awesome Shefa, but it's good Shefa. And if you learn in Pshat, if you understand the words in Pshat, then you bring down, so to speak, the back of a Baruch Hu. That's the type of Shefa you get down. But if you learn in the right way, and I don't want to say the right way because we really don't know how to do this, but in a way that's understanding the Kavanos properly, getting into the Kishkas of every word, really, really getting into the depths of every word, says the Degomach then you bring down Shefa from the front of a Baruch Hu. You bring it down from the front that brings something from over there. Avanim, he says, is another way to learn words. Avanim can mean the words of the Torah, the words of tefillah that a person has. And if so, Avne Shoham can be read as Avanim Shehem, stones as they are. You want to read the words as they are? You want to read the words as they are? Then you'll be able to get the aphod. Where is the aphod put on the Kohen Gadol? In the back. That's the Avne Shoham. The Avne Shehem will get the back. However, if you do Avne Miluim, if you learn the insides of every word, you learn the understanding behind every word, you really get it. Then that goes to the Choshen, the front, 
you get the Shefa from the front of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. It could be that's the remez behind it. So very quickly, what we've learned tonight is simply put, we learned Rashi and the Ramban. What it refers to about the Avnei Chosh and the Avnei Miluim. What it refers to over here. What these stones are, the Avnei Shoam and the Avnei Miluim. Rashi and the Ramban, how we understand it. After we did that, we went through the Orachayim HaKadosh's question and the three answers. Sichos Muster on two of those answers over there. And we ended off with both the Rabbeinu Ephraim, the Balei Tosfos, as well as the Dego Machna Ephraim, how to understand it in a different fashion altogether. Have a good Shabbos, everybody.